You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. On February 16, 2003, a group of canny criminals crept into Belgium's Antwerp Diamond Center, armed with little more than hairspray and tape. Over the course of about five hours, they quietly and steadily worked to empty over a hundred safety deposit boxes, eventually absconding with more than a hundred million dollars worth of cash, gems, and, of course, diamonds. When the diamond traders arrived at work the following Monday, they couldn't believe what they found. Screaming, crying, and fainting, they discovered to their shock and horror that many of the safety deposit boxes were completely empty. Some valuables littered the ground, but it appeared that the robbers had simply left behind whatever they couldn't carry. The thieves had succeeded in robbing one of the most secure vaults in the world, and had even managed to pocket the security footage on the way out. So how exactly did they do it? Today, our friends at History Daily are going to untangle the mystery of the so-called Antwerp Diamond Heist. History Daily delves into fascinating stories about what happened on this day, from famous battles to revolutions in the world of fashion and much more. Their episodes have a little something for every kind of history fan, and they're always on the lookout for overlooked and forgotten moments in history, in the belief that history is human. Take a listen, and don't forget to click the link in our show notes to find out more and listen to other episodes. It's February 17, 2003. On an overcast Monday morning in Antwerp, Belgium, a security guard approaches the front door of a large concrete building. He punches in the entry code, unlocking a set of bulletproof glass doors, and then steps inside the lobby of the Antwerp World Diamond Center. This fortress-like building is the epicenter of the Antwerp Diamond District, a one-square-mile section of the city where over 80% of the world's rough diamonds are cut, polished, and sold. The security guard whistles as he crosses the lobby, his shoes squeaking on the parquet floor. Every day, millions of dollars' worth of diamonds are traded right here in the Diamond Center. And before being sold and shipped, many of the diamonds are stored inside safe deposit boxes, locked in a vault directly beneath this building. That's where the security guard is going, to make sure the vault is secure before the day's trading begins. But the guard's not worried. The Diamond Center's vault is among the strongest in the world. It's defended by 10 impregnable layers of security, including heat and motion sensors, Doppler radar, closed-circuit TV cameras, and a lock with over 100 million possible combinations. Bypassing just one of those layers of security is inconceivable. Overcoming all of them is impossible. The security guard descends two floors in an elevator and emerges in the basement. He twirls his keys around his index finger as he strolls up to the door of the vault. But then he stops. The vault door is ajar. Tentatively, the security guard approaches and peers inside. His stomach lurches. The doors of the safe deposit boxes have all been flung open and their contents ransacked. Loose diamonds and gold bars are strewn across the floor. The security guard spins on his heels and sprints to the nearest telephone. 
Reports will soon emerge that an estimated $100 million worth of diamonds and gold were stolen from the Antwerp Diamond Center in what the press will dub the heist of the century. But as the diamond industry reels in shock, the authorities will already be following a bizarre trail of breadcrumbs that will lead them right to the group of thieves who almost carried out the perfect crime on February 16, 2003. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is February 16th, the Antwerp Diamond Heist. It's the summer of 2001, three years before the heist of the century. A dark-haired, middle-aged man walks up to the front entrance of the Antwerp World Diamond Center. He nods at the security guard, who recognizes him and buzzes him through. Leonardo Notabartolo is a diamond importer from Italy, who for the past year has been renting an office inside the center. Every morning he comes into work, passes through security, and then disappears inside his office. Occasionally, he can be seen elsewhere in the building, wandering corridors or depositing diamonds in the vault. He's an ordinary-looking person, Caucasian, slightly overweight, wearing plain button-downs with a pen clipped to his breast pocket. Nobody pays him much attention. To them, he's just another face passing in the hallway. But if anybody were to pay Leonardo close attention, they might notice that the pen clipped to his shirt pocket is not a pen at all. It's a miniature camera. And when he takes trips to the vault, Leonardo is not really depositing diamonds. He's documenting the precise layouts of the corridors, the locations of the surveillance cameras, and the combination codes for the locked doors. Leonardo is not a diamond importer. He's a master thief, and his current target is his most difficult challenge yet, the impenetrable vault of the Antwerp Diamond Center. When Leonardo first rented his office in the center, he wasn't intending to break into the vault. Rather, he used it as a base to commit other, smaller robberies around the Diamond Center. But a few months ago, Leonardo was approached by a dealer with whom he'd conducted illicit business in the past. The dealer offered to pay Leonardo $130,000 to answer a simple question. Can the Diamond Center's vault be robbed? At first, Leonardo thought the dealer was crazy. After all, he already knows the vault is impenetrable. But then he shrugged and said, sure. He figured it would be the easiest $130,000 he'd ever make. And so, with a miniaturized camera hidden in a pen, Leonardo began taking pictures. And over the course of several months, while posing as an office worker, Leonardo documented everything. The building's layout, the extensive surveillance systems, and most crucially, the vault itself. Then Leonardo reports his findings to the dealer. He tells him that the Antwerp Diamond Center's vault is built to repel the most cunning of thieves, its solid steel three-ton door can withstand 12 hours of continuous drilling. To even reach the innermost door, a burglar would have to bypass multiple security cameras, infrared heat and motion sensors, light sensors, and a lock with over 100 million possible combinations and an impossible-to-replicate foot-long key. Finally, metal plates on the side of the door form a magnetic field that, when broken, triggers an alarm. And then, even inside the vault, the steel and copper safe deposit boxes require their own keys and combinations. 
In short, Leonardo tells him the answer is no. Robbing the Antwerp Diamond Center is not possible. The dealer thanks him for his time, and Leonardo believes that's the end of it. But then five months later, the same dealer asks Leonardo to meet him at an abandoned warehouse outside Antwerp. There, the dealer shows him something extraordinary. An exact replica of the Diamond Center's vault, copied precisely from the photographs Leonardo provided. And standing alongside the replica are four men. Not wanting to reveal their identities, the dealer only gives their aliases. The first man is a renowned alarm specialist known as the Genius. Next, there's the Monster, a tall, muscular man and gifted electrician. The King of Keys is a wizened old locksmith and one of the world's best key forgers. Lastly, there's a man Leonardo recognizes from his childhood in Italy, a veteran thief named Speedy. The dealer then introduces Leonardo to the others as the artist. Having constructed an exact replica of the vault, the dealer wants Leonardo and these four other men to practice breaking into it. And once they've mastered that task, the dealer wants Leonardo to orchestrate the world's most daring heist. In exchange, Leonardo will receive a portion of whatever they manage to steal from the Diamond Center. It's an insane plan that any normal person would walk away from. But Leonardo is a professional thief, and he knows this is the job of a lifetime. If the plan succeeds, he will likely end up with millions. So with a twinkle in his eye, Leonardo says yes. It's a Friday afternoon at the Antwerp Diamond Center on February 14, 2003. Most of the center's workers have left for the weekend, but not Leonardo Notabartolo. He takes the elevator down to the vault, where a security guard buzzes him through. Once inside, Leonardo acts fast. He produces a can of hairspray from his jacket and in one discreet motion sprays the heat and motion center with a fine aerosol mist. This simple but effective technique will temporarily disable the sensor for at least 48 hours, more than enough time for Leonardo and his crew to do their work. Leonardo slips the can back into his jacket pocket, then exits the vault and walks right past the guard, who has no idea what's just happened. Two days later, in the early hours of the morning on Sunday, February 16th, Leonardo parks his rental car on a quiet side street in the Diamond District. Leonardo is the mastermind of this heist, but he's not as nimble as he once was. So he stays behind in the getaway car while the other four thieves, the genius, the monster, Speedy, and the king of keys clamor out of the car carrying empty duffel bags. With wordless precision, the thieves execute their plan. The king of keys picks the lock of an adjacent office building. From there, they enter a garden that adjoins the diamond center. Using a ladder stashed in the bushes, they clamber up to a second-floor balcony and enter in through a window. Next, they follow a maze of corridors to a darkened stairwell, which leads them down to the vault. Along the way, they place plastic bags over surveillance cameras. Then the genius removes an aluminum slab from his bag and fastens it to the two magnetic plates fixed to the vault door. This allows him to unscrew the magnets without breaking the magnetic field and triggering the alarm. Prior to the break-in, the King of Keys forged a master key to the vault. But he doubts he'll need it. The guards have been getting lazy as of late. So before using his forged key, King checks a utility closet just outside the vault. And sure enough, the original key is there hanging from a hook. 
With a self-satisfied smile, the king unlocks the door, while the genius enters the combination code gleaned from Leonardo's reconnaissance. The genius turns the handle, and the vault door swings wide open. But next, the thieves will need to step inside the vault, where heat and motion sensors are located. But two days earlier, Leonardo disabled the sensors with a can of hairspray. Still, the sticky aerosol layer won't hide the body heat of four men. So only the monster slowly and methodically steps into the pitch-dark room. He carefully lifts a ceiling panel, and using a pair of tweezers, reroutes the wiring system that controls the sensors. It's now safe for the others to enter the vault. The King of Keys swiftly picks the lock on every safe deposit box, while the other three fill their duffel bags with uncut diamonds, bundles of cash, and gold bullion. Meanwhile, outside, Leonardo anxiously taps the steering wheel, watching the street fill with the pre-dawn light. Finally, at about 6 a.m., Leonardo looks in the rearview mirror and sees his accomplices racing towards him, their eyes flashing with exhilaration. As Leonardo puts the car in gear, he's confident they've just pulled off the perfect crime. Twelve hours later, Leonardo and his longtime associate Speedy are driving along the highway out of Antwerp towards Brussels. The thieves have split up and are heading to Milan, where they plan to regroup and divide the loot. In the back seat of the car is a garbage bag. It's filled with trash, but also contains incriminating evidence, photographs, and various documents related to the heist. They need to find somewhere discreet to burn it all. So they pull off the highway and follow a dirt road to a remote patch of woodland. There, Leonardo gets out and explores the area to ensure the coast is clear. So far, everything has gone flawlessly. But Leonardo is worried about Speedy, his longtime acquaintance. Speedy is known to lose his cool under pressure, and Leonardo hopes Speedy can keep it together until they arrive in Milan. But that's not what happens. When Leonardo returns to the car, he finds Speedy having a panic attack, manically emptying the garbage bag into the undergrowth, hyperventilating as he tries to discard the evidence. Leonardo eventually calms him down, but just as Speedy regains composure, his eyes flash with fear again and says someone's coming. It's not just in Speedy's head. Leonardo hears it too. Voices closing in on their location. There's no time to properly dispose of the evidence. The thieves jump in the car and drive off, leaving the trash littered on the ground, praying that no one will find it. In a few days' time, the thieves regroup in Milan and divvy up the spoils. But it quickly becomes clear that something's not right. Many of the bags they pulled from the safe deposit boxes are either empty or contain far less than they expected. Leonardo and his team left the Diamond Center with what they were told would be more than $100 million worth of valuables. But when they take an inventory, there's only about $20 million worth. Leonardo tries to contact the Diamond Dealer, the person responsible for the whole affair. But the dealer is nowhere to be found. As Leonardo thinks back to the bizarre origins of the heist, it slowly begins to dawn on him that they've been set up. Perhaps Leonardo considers other dealers at the Diamond Center knew about the impending heist. Perhaps they removed their valuables from the vault right before the robbery and now intend to claim they've been stolen. Leonardo thought he pulled off the perfect crime, but now is forced to consider the more likely truth. He and the rest of his team have been made patsies in an elaborate scheme to commit insurance fraud. It's Monday, February 17th, 2003, the day after the heist. 
A 59-year-old retired grocer named Auguste Van Camp is out rabbit hunting when he spots something that makes his blood boil. Somebody has littered on his property. But when he begins cleaning up, he finds documents marked with the words Antwerp Diamond Center. It doesn't mean much to him. Trash is trash. And Van Camp angrily dials the police, muttering about the good-for-nothing kids whom he presumes left it there. Normally, the police ignore Van Camp when he calls them often to complain. But this time, when Van Camp tells them what he's found, they send someone over right away. After the heist, authorities were perplexed. There were no witnesses, and the thieves left behind no fingerprints, no evidence, until they found the trash on Van Camp's property. One of the potential clues is a half-eaten salami sandwich bought from a store in Antwerp. Detectives review security camera footage from the store and identify Ferdinando Fanato, an electrician and convicted thief. Leonardo knows him as the monster. There's also a business card bearing the name of Elio Denorio, an Italian alarm specialist connected to a string of robberies, the genius. Finally, the police find a receipt for a video surveillance system that bears the name Leonardo Notobartolo, the artist. Then a raid of Leonardo's apartment in Italy leads police to the most critical piece of evidence of all, 17 unpolished diamonds stolen from the vault in Antwerp. Soon, four of the five thieves will be in police custody, including Leonardo's longtime acquaintance Speedy, who will be identified as Pietro Tavano. Only the King of Keys manages to evade arrest, never to be found again. In 2009, six years into his 10-year prison sentence, Leonardo Notobartolo gives an exclusive interview to an American reporter. During the interview, Leonardo insists that he was set up by the diamond dealer who organized the heist as an elaborate insurance scam and that his team only made away with $20 million worth of valuables. But the authorities cannot confirm if Leonardo is telling the truth. Many believe he concocted the insurance fraud story to conceal the fact that he stashed away the rest of the $100 million worth of valuables before his arrest. And it has since emerged that Leonardo and his fellow thieves belong to a shadowy network of Italian criminals known as the School of Turin. As a result of this discovery, there are many who believe that Leonardo was never approached by a diamond dealer, but that he came up with a plan on his own, and he assembled the crew to help him pull off the largest diamond heist in history. But nothing is certain, because most of what is known about the Antwerp diamond heist is based on the testimony of Leonardo himself. But what's indisputable is that the world's most audacious heist, the robbing of the Antwerp Diamond Center, which took place on February 16, 2003, was spoiled by a bag of garbage. Next on History Daily, February 17, 1815, Future President James Monroe presents the Treaty of Ghent to the British Ambassador in Washington, marking the official end of the War of 1812. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. The Cold War remains one of the tensest periods in modern history, with the rival United States and the Soviet Union vying for influence around the globe and at times even inching the world closer to the brink of nuclear apocalypse. In the midst of this atmosphere of mistrust and paranoia, each country sent undercover operatives, spies from the CIA in America and the KGB in the Soviet Union, 
overseas to gather information. It was a life-and-death business, and more than a few of these operatives were found out and captured by the enemy. On February 10, 1962, with Cold War tensions nearly at their peak, the United States and the Soviet Union worked out a mutually beneficial agreement. The Soviets would release American spy pilot Gary Powers in exchange for the U.S.'s release of Soviet Colonel Rudolf Abel, a senior KGB spy who had been captured five years earlier. Both men were brought to the Glienicker Bridge, which connected East Berlin to West Berlin. At the center of the bridge, negotiators spoke along the white line that divided the city. Finally, after some time, they waved Powers and Abel forward, and the two men crossed the border at the exact same moment at 8.52 a.m. Today's second story from our friends at History Daily dives into the tense negotiations of these quote-unquote Cold War spy swaps. Stay tuned to listen in and be sure to check out the link in our show notes for more stories from History Daily. Have you ever wondered exactly how inbred the Royal House of Hasburg was? What women in the past used for pregnancy tests? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? If so, then History Tea Time is the podcast for you. Each week, host Lindsay Holiday presents thorough historic research on a variety of fascinating topics in an easy-to-follow narrative, including the sorts of juicy stories and scandals you won't hear about in history class. With over 70 episodes, there's something for everyone. Take deep dives into the lives of queens and royals you've seen in popular dramas like Bridgerton, Victoria, and The Great. Understand modern royal practices like coronations, titles, and succession rules, and their historic context. Find out what women, LGBTQ plus people, and people of color were up to in history. Explore the evolution of names, menstruation, childbirth, drag, and other topics from prehistory to today. Join Lindsay every Tuesday for a steaming hot cup of tea by listening to History Tea Time wherever podcasts are enjoyed. It's May 1st, 1960. High above the Soviet Union, an American U-2 spy plane soars through cloudless skies. The U-2 is a single-seater airplane operated by the American intelligence agency, the CIA. In its cramped cockpit sits 30-year-old pilot Gary Powers. Powers is surrounded by switches and dials. It's not just the plane he has to control, but the onboard cameras, tape recorders, radars, and radios. As he flies over the eastern slopes of the Ural Mountains, Powers reaches down to a small joystick at his side. It controls the cameras beneath the plane. He adjusts the focus, then squeezes the shutter button to take a photograph of the enemy territory below. The United States and the Soviet Union were allies during the Second World War. But in the 15 years since their joint victory over the Nazis, mutual suspicion between the superpowers has fueled a global Cold War. It's a conflict that always teeters on the edge of violence. Both powers have atomic bombs in their arsenals. Any misjudgment or provocation could lead to nuclear Armageddon. With trust in short supply, both America and the Soviet Union are desperate to find out what the other is up to. For the CIA, the U-2 spy plane is a key asset. It cruises at 70,000 feet, well beyond the range of any Soviet aircraft. And as far as the Americans know, the Russians can't strike that high with their anti-aircraft missiles either. The pilot of this U-2, Gary Powers, has flown over 27 missions in the spy plane. But this is his most daring yet. 
Gary's objective is to fly all the way across the Soviet Union before landing in Norway. Along the way, Powers is to take photographs of missile installations, nuclear bomb facilities, and other military sites the Soviets may have hidden deep within their territory. It's dangerous work, but so far uneventful. But then, hours into the flight, a flash of light streaks across Powers' helmet visor. He barely has time to turn his head before the air explodes just behind his plane. As Powers struggles to maintain control of the aircraft, he sees another streak. And another flash followed by a second explosion, this one even closer. The force of the blast buffets the spy plane violently. Alarms blare out in the cockpit as the plane's engine sputters before failing completely. Then there's a sudden eerie silence. The nose of the plane dips and the U-2 spirals down toward the Earth. The U-2 incident, as this encounter will come to be called, will spark a crisis in the Cold War. It will derail the fragile peace between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and force both countries into a tense negotiation that will culminate in a spy swap on February 10, 1962. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is February 10th, the Cold War spy swap. It's May 2nd, 1960, one day after Gary Powers' plane went down. A helicopter takes off from Camp David, a presidential retreat in Maryland. On board the helicopter, codenamed Marine One, is President Dwight D. Eisenhower. As the aircraft lifts into the sky, the 69-year-old commander-in-chief stares out the window. Aides perch on seats beside Eisenhower, but they know better than to interrupt his thoughts. The usually animated president is quiet. He's just received news he's longed feared. An American spy plane has been shot down over the Soviet Union. The pilot is missing and assumed dead. Eisenhower is in the last months of his eight-year presidency. He came to power at the height of the Red Scare, a period when fears of communism drove the American population to near hysteria. His administration has since grappled with the escalating Cold War, now, as he nears the end of his time in office, Eisenhower is determined to leave his successor a more constructive relationship with the Soviet Union. Central to those hopes is an East-West summit planned in Paris in just two weeks' time. Along with British and French leaders, Eisenhower will meet with the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. The hope is that a successful summit with his Soviet counterpart will finally ease the catastrophic threat of nuclear confrontation. But the news the president just received from the CIA puts all of that at risk. On the Marine One flight to the White House, Eisenhower ponders what to do about the downed spy plane. The CIA has suggested a cover-up. That doesn't sit easily with the president. If Khrushchev finds out about the deception, all the work Eisenhower has done to build up trust could be ruined. But if the Americans are honest about the U-2, the Soviets will know from their own admission that the U.S. has been spying on them. Eisenhower is trapped between two far less than ideal choices. When Marine One lands in Washington, he reluctantly gives the go-ahead for the CIA's cover-up, 
With the plane assumed destroyed and the pilot dead, he hopes his administration will be able to lie their way out of the situation. Soon, the U.S. government issues a statement. They claim the U-2 plane was on a mission to study the weather and that the pilot reported technical difficulties before straying into Soviet airspace where he crashed. But Eisenhower and his advisors do not yet realize that the pilot Gary Powers is alive and well and in the hands of the Soviets. It's May 15, 1960, at the U.S. Embassy in Paris, France. President Eisenhower waits inside for a car that will take him to the long-planned summit with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. Eisenhower clasps his hands behind his back, pacing back and forth. It's his habit when he's nervous, and he has good reason to be today. The summit could not have gotten off to a worse start. A few days ago, the Soviets announced to the world that the plane shot down over the USSR was not on a weather mission, as the Americans claimed. It was espionage, and the Soviets have proof. They have the wreckage of the plane and its spying equipment, and they have the pilot, Gary Powers. The U.S. government assumed the CIA pilot died in the crash, but Powers survived and was taken prisoner by the Soviets. The mission and the failed cover-up are deeply embarrassing for Eisenhower. Some in America have even called for the president's resignation. He hoped the summit would crown his time in the Oval Office with a treaty that set the Soviet Union and America on a pathway to peace. Instead, all anyone can talk about is the spy plane. When Eisenhower hears a knock on the door of the embassy, he stops his pacing. An aide appears and tells him the car has come. Soon the president arrives at the summit and he is joined by the British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan and French President Charles de Gaulle. They've already spoken to Khrushchev in private, and they know the Soviet premier is furious. Indeed, almost as soon as the summit begins, Khrushchev demands Eisenhower apologize. When Eisenhower refuses, Khrushchev walks out of the summit and rejects any further negotiations. Eisenhower's hopes for the summit have collapsed. There will be no triumphant peace deal to mark the end of his time in office. Instead, Eisenhower will leave the White House with relations between the superpowers at a new low, And soon, the task of forging a new peace with the Soviets will fall to Eisenhower's successor, President John F. Kennedy. Kennedy will also have to deal with another issue, what to do about pilot Gary Powers. As Kennedy sets out to deal with the crisis, Khrushchev will make one thing perfectly clear. If the Americans want their pilot back, they will have to give the Soviets something in return. It's 7 a.m. on June 21, 1957. In a tiny hotel room in downtown New York, a scrawny 53-year-old named Willie Fisher is fast asleep when there's a knock on the door to his room. The man blinks himself awake, then grumbles and gets up to answer the door. He sees there's a man outside. He flashes an FBI badge and calls out through the door, Mr. Collins? Fisher hesitates and says yes and opens the door a crack. Mr. Collins is one of the many aliases Willie Fisher has used since he first came to America. He speaks fluent English, with an accent people often mistake for Scottish. But Fisher is in fact a Soviet spy. He was born in England to communist parents. Later, they returned from England to the Soviet Union, where Willie Fisher grew up and learned the art of spycraft. In 1948, his superiors sent him to America. For nine years, he lived undercover. 
using different names and posing as an artist, Fisher ran a network of Soviet spies who smuggled nuclear secrets out of America. But soon Fisher will learn that one of his comrades has betrayed him. Fisher's deputy was a lazy drunk. He was so incompetent that officials in Moscow ordered him to return to the homeland. Scorned, the deputy turned informant and told the FBI everything he knew, including where to find his boss, Willie Fisher. Now, Fisher sits on the bed in the hotel room as the FBI man questions him. Fisher says nothing, but his stonewalling doesn't prevent the agents from uncovering the truth. They find shortwave radios, cipher pads, and cameras. They also find thousands of dollars in cash and encrypted messages hidden on microfilm. The FBI attempt to flip Fisher, to make him a double agent, one who works for them against the Soviets. But Fisher is a loyal communist, a true believer, and he doesn't cooperate. He's subjected to lengthy interrogations, but he reveals nothing, not even his name. Unable to recruit Fisher, the U.S. government prosecutes him for espionage. At a trial in November 1957, Fisher is convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Fisher is lucky he is not sentenced to death. He is allowed to live because his lawyer, James B. Donovan, convinces the judge that one day, Willie Fisher may prove useful. It's February 3rd, 1962, in Germany. A cold wind whips across the tracks of a train station. On the platform, Willie Fisher's lawyer, James B. Donovan, squints into the distance. He can just make out a train approaching. The 45-year-old American wraps his coat tighter around his waist and ponders the strange course of events that have led him here to West Berlin. It began with Donovan's choice to defend Willie Fisher in court. Donovan's decision invited the scorn of the public. Protesters picketed his family's apartment building, accusing the fastidious lawyer of being a Soviet sympathizer. Donovan certainly came to respect his client for his clear intelligence and his ability to speak five languages. But Donovan was no traitor and no friend of the communists. He had served in the U.S. Navy during the Second World War, and after, he helped prosecute Nazis for war crimes. While he was working on the Fisher case, Donovan did make contact with a person claiming to be Willie Fisher's wife, but was in fact a member of the Soviet intelligence agency, the KGB. Four years after Fisher's conviction, this agent contacted Donovan again. This time, she wanted to discuss a spy exchange. If the Americans were willing to release Willie Fisher, the Soviets would free the U-2 pilot, Gary Powers. With the approval of the U.S. government, Donovan has traveled here to West Berlin to negotiate the exchange. But he's been warned. Once he crosses into communist East Berlin, he's on his own. If anything goes wrong, the American government will claim complete ignorance of all his activities. Soon, the train he's been waiting for rattles into the station, and Donovan quickly hops on board eager to escape the icy wind. In a few moments, the train moves off again, carrying the American lawyer into East Berlin, where negotiations will begin at the Soviet embassy. The talks with the KGB will last for days, and each night Donovan will return to the Hilton Hotel in Berlin to report his progress to a CIA handler. In the end, Donovan will broker a deal with the Soviets, and the two spies, the artist Willie Fisher and pilot Gary Powers, will go free. It's before dawn on February 10th, 1962, in Berlin. 
the Glienicke Bridge spans the border between communist East Germany and capitalist West Berlin. A car stops at a checkpoint on the East German end of the bridge. A rear door to the car opens, and CIA pilot Gary Powers climbs out wearing a heavy coat and a Russian fur hat. As KGB agents escort him onto the bridge, Powers' legs tremble. He's already decided that if something goes wrong with the exchange, he's going to make a break for the other side, figuring a bullet in the back is better than returning to the Soviet prison he was held captive in. Two years ago, in August 1960, Powers pleaded guilty to espionage charges in Moscow. He was sentenced to 10 years, three in prison, and then seven more doing hard labor. But his incarceration, 150 miles east of Moscow, was cut short in early February of this year, when news arrived an agreement had been made to swap him for a Soviet spy. Now, accompanied by KGB agents, Powers walks toward the center of the Glinecki Bridge. A white line marks the boundary between east and west. A group of men wait on the other side. One of them, an American, steps forward and crosses the painted border to approach Powers. He shakes Powers' hand and asks, what was the name of your high school football coach? It's a security question meant to verify his identity. Powers remembers filing it on a form years ago, but today, in the strain of the moment, he can't remember. Powers' mind is blank. He knows that if he can't come up with the name, they might not take him. So Powers blurts out the names of his wife, his mother, his dog, desperate to convince these men that he is who he says he is. The American and the rest of the men return to the western side of the bridge to confer. Finally, after a long wait, at 8.52 a.m., they wave Powers forward. He glances at the KGB men, but they make no move to stop him as he walks across the border. At the exact same time, a scrawny man in his 50s passes him from the other side. Gary Powers and Willie Fisher are both free. In the aftermath of the spy swap, both countries declare the prisoner exchange a victory. In America, Kennedy's White House holds a triumphant late-night conference that lands the story of Powers' release on the front page of the Washington Post and New York Times. After his release, Powers retires from the CIA to become a private pilot. But for years, he has nightmares about his time as a prisoner in Russia. He will later die in a helicopter crash, after which the American government will award him the Silver Star for Valor. The spy swap of pilot Gary Powers for artist Willie Fisher did not ease the tensions of the Cold War. Throughout the several decades after the swap, the two superpowers' attempts at espionage and hard-nosed diplomacy only continued, reaching its first new peak only months after the swap during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But for a small moment, an agreement was reached when an American lawyer from the Bronx arranged a deal with the KGB, setting CIA pilot Gary Powers free on February 10th, 1962. Next on History Daily, February 11th, 2011, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak steps down after nearly 30 years in power following pro-democracy uprisings known as the Arab Spring. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by William Simpson. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcasts at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.